Matt here, and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be looking at episode 411, entitled Cabin Fever. This is the 83rd episode of the series, and there are 38 to go. With that, let's jump straight into the Wikipedia summary for this episode. The episode begins with a flashback to the 1950s, when 16-year-old Emily Locke is preparing for a date with a man twice her age. Her mother tries to stop her from going out, but Emily escapes and is struck by a car. The trauma triggers the premature birth of John. John's life is monitored by Richard Alpert, who at John's birth and throughout his childhood looks the same age as he does in the present day, and Matthew Abaddon, each of whom attempts to influence his life. The existence of Middle East bioscience is revealed when John is invited to spend the summer there as a highly gifted high school student. In the present day, Locke, Hurley, and Ben are attempting to find a cabin inhabited by Jacob, the de facto leader of the others. They are initially unsuccessful, but an apparition of deceased Dharma Initiative member Horace Goodspeed assists Locke by pointing him to the Initiative's mass grave. There, Locke extracts a set of blueprints from Horace's jacket and uses it to locate the cabin. On the freighter Kahana, mercenary Martin Kimi returns from his unsuccessful attack on the barracks, the former home of the others. Enraged that his mission was unsuccessful and several of his colleagues were killed, he accuses Captain Galt of giving him up to Ben, but Galt tells Kimi that Michael is the actual spy. Kimi tries to kill Michael by shooting him, but just as in Meet Kevin Johnson, when Michael tried to commit suicide, the gun jams. Galt then tells Kimi that Michael is vital to repairing the engines. Kimi's intentions uses a Zodiac boat to return to the island, hoping to save as many people as possible. Desmond refuses to accompany him, saying that he would never return to the island after he left. Several hours after Saeed leaves, Kimi stages a mutiny. A soldier receives a message from the island saying they found the body of ship doctor Ray, but the doctor protests that it's impossible since he's alive on the boat. Kimi orders Frank Lapidus at gunpoint to prepare the freighter's helicopter. Lapidus refuses, and Kimi kills the doctor and Galt in response. Lapidus acquiesces, and Kimi leaves the freighter with a group of mercenaries intending to torch the island. When the helicopter passes over the survivor's beach camp, Frank drops a bag containing a satellite phone onto the beach. At the end of the episode, Locke enters the cabin and meets the deceased Christian Shepard, who claims he is speaking on Jacob's behalf, and is accompanied by his daughter, Claire Littleton. Christian warns Locke that Kimi's mercenaries from the Kahana are already en route to the island, that the island must be moved. And with that, 
Let's now move to the Wikipedia summary of the episode. Uh, this is a, a quite a good episode, but I think that it needs to be viewed through the through the proper glasses, and that is that essentially, uh, John Locke is a big loser, and this is something that I think many uh, many Lost fans resist accepting. Uh, if only because we were so inspired by the episode Walkabout. Uh, indeed, a truly uh, inspiring episode. Um, but I think that that has now colored us and indeed colored the castaways to seeing uh, the the angry, empty man who he so often is. And I think that we see that uh, many times in this episode, particularly on island, but also supported by uh, uh, particularly, let's say, um, the, the teenaged high school lock that we see. Um, and let's not forget, you know, this, the, the fantastic knife throwing lock, the provider from episode 104 walkabout, you know, he meets his end, uh, get, getting, you know, getting hung by the guy who tried to kill him once. Uh, so obviously not in this episode, but a little, uh, lock direction as we as we get things going here um and indeed speaking of Locke, there's a great opening um it's one that i had completely forgot about and it was momentarily confusing even on repeat viewing uh it's the 1950s there's a young woman what in the world is going on who are these people when in the world is this of course with the first mention of emily we smarty pants should be a bit ahead of the curve though the scene ends with Name him John. Uh, it's nice, nice juxtaposition, uh, if not a little obvious. He's born premature. He's underloved, and he enters the world with mommy and daddy issues straight out of the gate. Nice casting, by the way, for the uh, for the young Emily here. Uh, just kind of, uh, I don't know, the actress had a particular look to her. Anyhow, the flashback over. We see Locke, Hurley, and Ben looking for the cabin. There's a darkly amusing moment. Locke, the line leader here, asks Ben, who's behind him, where they're going. Ben says that he's been following Hurley. Not only is it a dysfunctional group, but it's Ben following her Hurley. Something that he'll do for the the unknown age that uh, you know the the length of time that takes place uh, after uh, well after Jack's death and and before the the flash sideways. Um, also something that they touch on towards the end of the episode, not to spoil that, but I worry, I, I worry I'll forget it. Um, just before Locke comes out of the cabin at the very end, there's Hurley, uh, sweet little moment, uh, sharing a candy bar with Ben. Uh, you know, he giving it to Ben, Ben being game enough to, to, to join, uh, Hurley in the, uh, you know, little, <laughs> little, you know, break for, to have the candy bar. So, we're starting to see the Hurley and Ben picture coming together here, I would argue. Anyhow, with that, the story moves to the freighter, where Kimi and his wounded group have returned. There's great blocking to the scene. I have no doubt that uh, you know Kimi is a tall man, but here he towers over both Saeed and Galt, the latter of which, as captain of the boat and man in charge, gets... A gun pointed at him for being suspected of the person who ratted uh, to Ben about Kimi and company. Looks like our soldier of fortune is showing his true colors early on. Again, you know, it's a fabulous transition that they have for Kimi. The first time we see him uh, as uh, Desmond uh, steps off the helicopter after, uh, you know, after his uh, flashes in the constant, 
Kimi is just kind of sympathetic, you know, whoa, you're kind of a little tipsy here. Are you okay, friend? And now we're seeing, you know, that, that, that Kimi was acting there and here, here it's the real guy. Um, anyhow, Galt, of course, says that uh, he wasn't the one that ratted out everybody, uh, which is a nice reminder of the last time we were on the boat. There was that whole Michael is the mole and now everyone knows revelation. After that, there's an amazing little bit of island power. Kimi is ready to kill Michael, but the soldier's gun won't work. And let me say that again, the soldier's gun, the likelihood that his gun is broken or jammed or whatever, is um, is possible. And if you came into this episode without having seen Meet Kevin Johnson, it might even be plausible. Uh, this is because the show is not overselling the scene. There's no explanation of island power or Michael's destiny. Uh, but we, of course, know Michael has a fate and him dying at the end of a perfectly working gun, which I would argue it is. It, it, the gun is working fine. It's just not working. Uh, that's not his fate to die in front of that or from that. Uh, with that, we have the title card. Then Locke wakes to hearing wood being chopped. Who does he wander across? Horace, played by, of course, our favorite Doug Hutchinson, whose real-life marriage of creepy proportions has previously been discussed on another episode of this podcast. At any rate, Horace talks about how he's building a little place for him and the missus, which of course is some extra irony considering Mr. Hutchinson's strange marriage. Anyhow, at this point, things turn trippy and weird, kind of repeating, almost a la The Matrix, uh, with messages to find him, Horace, in order to find Jacob. Now, we haven't seen many dreams like this. Um, and I think momentarily there's this question of what is it that's going on? How is it that things are being communicated by dream? And uh, the show has a tidy little answer. Locke uh, wakes up and he's fired by his dream. He's ready to go. And the scene ends with this lovely little capper of Ben, which also is an explanation. I used to have dreams too. So certainly the implication there that um, it is the island communicating to him. With that, we flash back to baby Locke, uh, who has survived, we are told, infections, pneumonia, and all of this because he's a fighter. By the way, it's a good bit of baby casting, too. He looks genuinely like a baby that's a few months old. Uh, with that, the Mothers of the Year Award is handed out in a tie. Emily declares that she can't handle motherhood and bolts. It's excusable, if not uh, understandable, or perhaps the other way around, understandable, if not excusable. Uh, either way, I think there's some sympathy for her, given her age. Grandma Locke, at this point, uh, starts to light up a cigarette and asks about options for adoption. Lovely ladies, aren't they? Uh, at this point, though, Grandma does notice someone watching. A handsome and ageless Richard, courtesy of uh, the post-writer's strike cancellation of Cain, which was the show that Nestor Carbonell, of course, had left Lost for. Uh, with that show now kaput, uh, he was able to return to the show and stay tuned at the end for a little Wikipedia tidbit that I would argue is, uh, I don't know if it's the fate of the island speaking through, but it certainly is a bit of, uh, a bit of karma, I would imagine, involving uh, Nestor Carbonell being on the show. Anyhow, flashback over. Locke says that they aren't quite headed to the cabin yet. Instead, there's this slow buildup of Locke asking Hurley, and reminding us because it's secret exposition, 
about what happened to the Dharma Initiative. Where did all those people go? The answer, to the pit Oh, the dead, of course. What happened to them, asks Hurley. He did, says Locke, nodding at Ben. Jacino's music races with uh, accusation and the act ends. I wonder if Ben will ever look for revenge for being so poorly treated by Locke. That, of course, is a story for another season. Anyhow, uh, after the act break, we are, are in flashback with a young John Locke being visited by a still ageless Richard who offers him, allegedly, a shot at a school for gifted children. Hey, maybe it's like X-Men. Okay, maybe not, but Richard is about to test Locke, but not before noticing, creepily, a picture of black smoke attacking someone, a picture drawn by young Locke. I'm not quite sure what to make of that. I don't think it really means a whole lot. I think it's just, a, you know, sometimes a cigar is a cigar. Sometimes a kid draws, or you know, black smoke knocking a guy over. Um, I certainly don't read into it any sort of uh, wisdom. Anyhow, with that, the test begins. Out comes the baseball glove, the Book of Laws, titled conveniently, Book of Laws, a vial of sand, compass, a comic book, and a knife. And then we have the question. Now, tell me, John, which of these things belong to you? Chief? No, no, John. Which of these things belong to you already? It's a confusing, strange scene. Is it metaphorical, like the compass is looking for direction? Is it possibly a time travel question we might be wondering? Um, Locke, of course, ultimately ends up deciding upon the knife, something that causes Richard consternation. And so what? You sure the knife belongs to you, John? You sure about that? How did he do? I'm afraid uh, John isn't quite ready for our school. I'm sorry I've wasted your time. What did you do? I'm still not clear of the point of that scene. Um, so what that he has the knife? He has a knife later in life. Uh, so is there some sort of relationship to that? Is it that the knife is a metaphor, is a tool of destruction uh, and separation? Is this really how Jacob conducted the island's important business through symbolic object selection? Uh, it's not a scene that I particularly have answers for, just kind of more questions. Uh, Anyhow, with the flashback over, Locke is rooting around in the bodies while Hurley asks why Ben did what he did. Hurley is standing and Ben is sitting like a scolded schoolchild. Definitely a bit of an authority position there, which is, again, one that they will will maintain after the, after the, the main timeline of the show. There's also a line of Ben saying that killing everyone wasn't his decision and that he hasn't always been the leader. 
It's accusatory and they could talk more about it, but darn if Locke doesn't find Horace's body with plans and a map of the cabin. It certainly works well. Why tell us too much? Uh, with that, the story moves to Kimi, uh, moves to the freighter where Kimi is with Captain Galt. There's a great job in the scene showing how Kimi is now in charge. He ignores warnings about the ship being dead in the water, then asks for the captain's key to the safe. What comes next is exposition at its finest, a laying out of things to come without spelling out too much. They talk about how there's a secondary protocol to be used in an emergency, which explains where Ben is going if he knows that the island will be torched. How does Widmore know this, Galt asks? Well, we, of course, know the answer. He's been there before, and we're headed toward a season finale. With that, we cut topside to Dr. Ray, or at least he's in the background, very much alive. And Omar, uh, in passing, starts to receive Morse code on his phone. The show doesn't oversell this point either, aside from a Giacchino glisten. It is, of course, Daniel's Morse code from episodes past. With Omar out of the picture, Galt is trying to save Saeed and Desmond. He wants them to hide in the galley, but Saeed wants to start ferrying people to the freighter. With that, we have an act break, and then Locke is all set to cut Hurley loose. Though Ben reads it as Locke convincing Hurley that he must stay by saying he must leave. So, which is it? I read it as Locke once again throwing up his uh, hands and saying, acting tough didn't work, so now I'll act nice. Uh, where, you know, I mean, to me, it's just this example of Locke sometimes pretends to be the cowboy, but he isn't one, which is something that we hear uh, in that uh, in the Locke flashbacks, the one that's coming up. Um, he's not certain things, but he spends his whole life trying to be them to, to the frustration of his, uh, of his existence, I would argue. So that's what I think, uh, uh, Locke did. Why does Hurley stick around? I think it's the Hurley is taking the leadership position to stay, to be involved, to run toward the fight, not away from it. Ben, of course, is getting this wrong, his theory that Locke has done a little, you know, mind trick on Hurley. And with Ben getting it uh, wrong, that's why he only ever got as far as the island's number two. Anyhow, with that, we flash back to high school Locke, who is stuffed into a locker. In the nurse's office, he gets an offer. I know you're probably upset right now, but I do have some exciting news for you. I got a call from Portland recently. There's a company up there doing some very exciting things in chemistry and new technologies. They're called Mitalos Laboratories. I spoke with a Dr. Alpert. He's very interested in finding young, bright minds to enter in these new fields of science. They want you to go to their camp this summer. Science camp? Yes. Don't you understand that things like science camp are the reason why I get stuffed into lockers? John, this is a great opportunity. How do they even know about me? Well, they must have sent a rep to the science fair. Your display at Costa Mesa. I'm not a scientist. I like boxing and fishing and cars. I like sports. I'm going to tell you something. Something I wish someone had told me at your age. You might not want to be that guy in the lab surrounded by test tubes and beakers but that's who you are john you can't be the prom king you can't be the quarterback you can't be a superhero 
Don't tell me what I can't do. Nice touch from uh, the Locke actor, as he seems to register some familiarity with Richard's name. Uh, though the flip side is that when he turns angry, he looks like a young actor doing an okay job. Anyhow, it's a nice statement, too, from the teacher. You might not want to be one thing, but if that's what you are, then that's what you are. It's a turnaround for that the famous phrase, uh, you know, don't tell me what I can't do. Uh, particularly now that the series is over. Locke never wanted to be told what he couldn't do, and he was wrong more than he was right. He never realized what he couldn't do and thus didn't appreciate what he could do. I know it almost sounds counterintuitive, and again, we're kind of, I think, overly informed by Walkabout to say, here's a man who who life and society had almost given up on, the mean boss, uh the tour operator who won't take him to the outback all because he's in a wheelchair and when you give him a chance look at this he's a provider and a protector but he's not he's a false prophet he's john the baptist he's not the christ to save us he's the false leader he's the one that gets ben killed and yes there are you know Locke's contributions do include bringing desmond into the story and the impact that desmond has on all these people and in the finale and saving the world and all that but Locke is not this great leader, and it's because he always looked somewhere else other than to what he what he was and where he was at. Anyhow, with that, we cut to the freighter, where Michael repeats uh, some info about how bad Widmore is, and thus uh, we see how good Lapidus is for believing in Michael. Then they both notice Kimi being fit with some sort of device. We'll learn later that his, it's his bio-monitor that, of course, will come into play in the finale. Topside, Saeed makes his move to start ferrying people to the freighter, though tellingly, Desmond refuses to set foot on the island ever again, although of course he will be back one more time. That we have an act break, then Ben gives a lament about how fickle destiny can be, and suddenly, they found the cabin. It's looking creepy and foreboding as before, so the three guys stare at it, and flashback. Locke unable to walk and in physical therapy. He's at the end of the session and we certainly can hear uh, ahead of time, I think, that the orderly picking him up is Abaddon. He, Locke, is focusing on the negative, 98% chance of no more feeling in his legs. Abaddon tells him that uh, he fell eight stories, that that's actually a miracle. It's an odd scene, sort of wrapped in mystery, uh, possibly for the sake of simply being mysterious. Abaddon suggests that uh, he go on a walkabout and how on Abaddon's walkabout he found out so much about himself and that they'll meet again. Um, this was just an odd scene. I'm not quite sure what the benefit is of having Abaddon in on the discussion here. Um, certainly insofar as Abaddon is, you know, has a Widmore connection. Is this a Widmore versus Island? Widmore versus Ben tugging match um as i said to me it was almost uh mysterious for the sake of being mysterious uh anyhow back on the freighter 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 omar asks a question uh it's odd how often lost will work with a one-two punch uh as you'll hear in this question in a moment give a hint 
for those who are smart enough to catch it first, then uh, state it plainly the second time out. Hey, Doc. You want to hear something weird? Yeah, sure. You know that Morse code message that I got from the beach? It said that the doctor washed up on the shore with his throat slit. But I'm the doctor. Crazy, right? Everything here? Yes, sir. Good. Get it packed up. Then we see of what Frank is made. What are you going to do with all that? Fire her up, Frank. Mr. Kimi, I was hired to fly scientists. Get your ass in the cockpit and fire up the chopper, Frank. I'm not taking you. I'll kill you, Frank. Yeah, well, you do that and you'll never get back to the island because I'm the only pilot you got. Dog. Change anything, Frank? Huh? Another 30 seconds goes by. It's someone else's turn. Fixed your gun. Now stand down, Martin, or I will fire. think you want to do that, Captain. What's that on his arm? What's that on his arm? Here, Kimi is intoxicating as the bulldog who's ready for the kill. He has this fire in his eyes. There's also that second one-two punch. Now we're really aware of the thing on Kimi's arm, uh, in case the secret view of it didn't whet our appetites. Um, with the captain now dead, Frank is serious about flying. The baddies load up on the chopper, and off it uh, off it goes, ending the act. After the act break, we're on Survivor Beach. Remember that? It's a, it, it truly feels like a long time, even though it's been, you know, it was just the last episode. Um, but it feels like forever ago. This is such a jam-packed episode. Um with frankly few weaknesses it's just you know it's not kind of marvelous in the sense of the constant or finale but it's just it's such a it's such a bewitching episode uh touching on island mythology and uh and whatnot that it's like oh yeah there's those survivor people on the beach anyhow jack is having some nummies hey remember him there's cute dialogue about how he's healing but the cuteness stops as our heroes hear the, the chopper in the distance. It zooms over, clearly not a rescue, and the bag is thrown out, looking suspiciously like the bag Lapidus was fiddle with, fiddling with before the act break. Jack's conclusion after finding uh, yet another phone in it is, let's follow them. Eh, not exactly the conclusion that would be my choice, but say lovey. I guess that's why Jack's Jack. Uh, with that, we cut to the cabin, where Ben admits that his time is over. Hey, no anger there, right? So he won't, 
you know, be worried at all or looking for revenge or to be sullen at all or not, not Ben, surely. Uh, anyhow, with Ben admitting that his time is over, he won't go in and Hurley admits that. He's also cool with Locke going in just by himself. It's chuckle-worthy, especially ahead of Locke heading into a setting that has previously been pretty terrifying for the show's palette. Uh, and as Locke goes in, the show milks it for every last moment, slowing down the pace for the sake of tension. Uh, there's someone clearly in there. Uh, according to the trivia, there's two someones visible if you're looking. Uh, someone who says he isn't Jacob, but can speak on his behalf. Who is he? Well, luckily, he leans forward uh, a bit into the light, just in time as he says he's Christian. Or as, of course, we know him, Smokey. Uh, there's a bit of double speak here. Locke asks why he's here, and Christian asks back if he knows, if Locke knows why he's here. With Locke saying he was chosen, Christian confirms it. Uh, all that's happened is that Smokey Christian has let Locke believe in his own sense of false destiny for the purposes of doing Smokey's evil bidding. Uh, this, of course, Smokey has seen this happen once before when he appeared uh, to Locke in the form of Walt. Almost as though that was a trial run. Hey, how how malleable is this guy? Um, let's keep feeding into his sense of his sense of destiny. Anyhow, the scene capper, which I think is kind of meant to be more impressive than it is, uh, is Locke asking, "How do I save the island?" There's a long moment on him, then a long moment on Christian, then a long moment on Claire, who smiles her slightly crazy smile. She is, of course being on the way to being fully crazy before too long. But why answer that question now, of course? Uh, we cut to Hurley and Ben outside, the scene I had, I had referenced uh, at the top of the podcast. Hurley reaches uh, for his candy bar and kindly offers uh, Ben half. Wordlessly, I might add. There's almost this unspoken trust between them. And I say almost. I don't think that Hurley trusts Ben, I think Hurley's just sitting there saying, you know what, we just found a cabin that moves and there's strange ghost scary people in there and we got the route to get here by uh, looking at a pile of bodies that one, you know, that Ben helped kill and everything's crazy. So if you're going to have an Apollo bar, why not just share it? <laughs> there's some bad karma in the air. Why not just do the, do the right thing and share a little chocolate? Um, I mean, they really just sit there like two peas in a pod, again, just as they'll end up in the years to come. It's a lovely, sweet little moment, broken only by the end uh, to the episode, and the one thing that will pro propel us uh, toward the start of the three-hour season finale. Did he tell you what we're supposed to do? I did. Well... He wants us to move the island. It's splendid, splendid stuff. It's a great ending to the regular part of the season. Uh, you know, as we now can officially look ahead to the start of the uh, the season finale. Uh, it does, of course, come with that asterisk with it being a super long three-part season finale. Uh, that is a season finale that takes up about a quarter of the season. Anyhow, with that, let's now take a look at Lostpedia. Uh, they note that this is the first episode since DOC, 
and the last show to solely feature pre-crash flashbacks of an Oceanic 815 survivor. However, it does not feature a single narrative, but rather multiple events throughout Locke's life. Eh, that's okay. The final pre-crash only flashback. They note, too, that uh, there's a Geronimo Jackson poster and a photograph of Sir Richard Burton Explorer in Locke's locker. Um, Didn't catch the Richard Burton picture, but I think they linger one second too long on the locker. You're supposed to see the Geronimo Jackson bit and say, oh, look, I just noticed something. It's a connection, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Anyhow, in Locke's dream, Horace Goodspeed mentions that he's been dead for 12 years. If accurate... This would place the date of the purge on December 19th, 1992, December 19th being Ben's birthday. So happy holidays to all of you in the Dharma Initiative. Best wishes for holiday season 1992. They also note uh, that Christian, who usually appears in a suit, wears clothes that look more like what the others and Jacob might wear, as he did when he first appeared to Claire in Something Nice Back Home. Uh, they also mention, does Lostpedia, that as Locke walks into the cabin, Claire can be seen in the bottom left of the screen, sitting in the shadows, a couple of minutes before she's revealed. Uh, that's a nice touch. That's a nice catch. Uh, and lastly, from Lostpedia, this is Emily Duravin's last appearance in the original on-island timeline until the season six episode, What Kate Does. So, certainly the uh, the, the break... Unfortunately, that we uh, get from uh, from the actress uh, is looming, looming closely. Last bit of trivia here, uh, filed under the uh, the category of uh, Dharma Karma, if you will, uh, comes from Wikipedia. While producing the final episodes of the third season, Nestor Carbonell, Richard, was cast in a starring role on the new CBS series Kane. The writers modified their original story plan for the third season in participation for Carbonell's potential unavailability. Despite Carbonell's willingness to return to Lost, CBS president Nina Tassler ruled out another Lost guest appearance. Kane was canceled during the 2007-2008 Writers' Guild of America strike, freeing Carbonell from his contract with CBS. So I ask you listeners, would Kane have stayed on the air if uh, CBS president Nina Tassler had let him uh, be available for guest appearances on Lost. I propose, probably not, but still it is fun to think about, isn't it? That evil Nina Tassler got the show canceled by messing with the, the majesty of Lost. So anyhow, that little bit of joking aside, uh, let's look ahead to next week. Next week we start three weeks in a row of season finale. Uh, episode 412, There's No Place Like Home, Part 1. Certainly a finale that I'm absolutely looking forward to getting into. Uh, we're entering uh, a great, great stretch of the show here. Season 4 has certainly been good. I think that, you know, they it would have been nice if every episode was flash-forwards. Um, but the flashbacks certainly have been important. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Season 5. Uh, the time travel business and whatnot. So we're about to get to some really, really fantastic stuff. So on that note, thank you for listening. It's always uh, so nice to be able to get together and talk about Lost. And I will talk to you all again next week for episode 412, There's No Place Like Home, part one. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye, everybody.